Spookies, welcome to the Rick or Treat Horror Cast, hosted by yours ghouly, Ricky J. Duarte. I have a return guest today, a writer, a playwright, uh, and a horror film reviewer and a horror film enthusiast. Please welcome back to the pod, Justin McDevitt. Hi, thanks for Hel- having me back. Hello, I'm so glad to have you back. Uh, Justin appeared on a mini-sode about the controversial Halloween Ends, uh, and we had a really great talk about it. And so I had to have him back. Absolutely had to. And wanted, I mean, for another holiday movie, for sure. But also (laughs) a really smart holiday movie. One that it's in my top five favorite horror films of all time. Well, what what are the other four? Of all time? Of all time. Oh my God, you got me on the spot right now. Well, Halloween. If you knew that that was one of the five, I thought thought you... (laughs) I... I, I retract the question if it's... If it's oh, God, no, it's too hard. It's too hard. Uh, you know what? I'll think on it, and next time you're back, I'll answer it more succinctly. Uh, but, this is, but this is one of your favorites. It is absolutely one of my... Among the favorites, for sure, for a lot of reasons, uh, which we're going to get into. But, Justin, I want to ask you, was your week a trick or a treat? It was a treat, mostly because the new Scream trailer came out, and I was very excited. Literally like two hours ago. Tell me your thoughts. Well, I'm just excited to ride the subway today. That's <laughs> that it's like, yeah, I do love my commute. Yeah. So set in New York City, filmed in Canada, which is a little disappointing to me, but you know, it's Hollywood. I made a joke, I think on Facebook where I said, y'all know the MTA stands for motherfuckers thrust in my ass <laughs> with a knife. Mm-hmm. I'm excited. I don't know why they're in New York. I don't. I mean, did they all, as a group, collectively move together? Because that is a very bohemian New York thing to do. Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm intrigued. I mean, I imagine Mindy's in film school. You know what I mean? It, it, it makes it makes sense. I think. Yeah, and it's you know I think it's first off really smart of them to get the hell out of Haddonfield, and Haddonfield? it's <laughs> Woodsboro. <laughs> Good catch. Uh, and it's not the first time that we've had a Scream movie out of Woodsboro as well. Scream 2 was on a college campus, you know. And the the original trilogy made me think that, you know, they would always go somewhere different because they did. <laughs> and right. then we got 4 and 5 in Woodsboro, which is kind of, which I really enjoy it. Don't get me wrong, but it is exhausting. It's more fun to see the characters go to different places. Agreed. Even like Halloween, we had H2O in Southern California. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm excited for it. I, um, I, I, I gotta say, the fact that they're putting the Roman numerals for six in the logo just makes me so mad that they did not call the last one Five Cream. You're admitting that this is six in a series. Just, I mean, I know they did it so that no one would call it Five Cream, but we're all calling it Five Cream anyway. <laughs> Yeah, the naming of the the sequels has been interesting. 
Yeah, well, I mean, at least they don't have annoying subtitles, you know. Oh, I want subtitles for the Scream series. Do you really? Oh, yeah, like oh. I want Return of the Revenge of the Curse <laughs> of, of Ghostface and the Witch. Yeah, <laughs> I would watch that in a heartbeat because they just I li- I like those subtitles because it 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 just adds this this really fun level of melodrama. Oh, for sure, it it tells you the stakes right up front. Why did I think? I thought they had decided to call them Scream Again or, like, Scream Louder. I thought that's what I had read. I think that was going to happen. I'm going to be honest. I'm glad it didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) Unless it was Scream, colon, Scream Again. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it is what it is, and we got what we got. And I'm looking forward. Jenna Ortega, now after a killer, killer year of, I mean, she's just the new Scream Queen, right? Yeah, Golden Globe nominated. Really? When did that happen? Uh, two days ago. I didn't hear. Is it for Wednesday? She's so good in it. So we talked about it on my last episode, but I wanted last two episodes, I think. But I wonder what you think about Wednesday specifically. I loved it. Did you? Yeah, I felt like her one-liners were just so delightful. Um, and the entire the entire thing was really exciting. I liked that it was so. Uh, the plot didn't really matter. <laughs> like okay. it was just the characters were so fun, and I really enjoyed what they were getting up to. the The mystery didn't have to be that. Like to me, it wasn't important. Like the mystery was kind of obvious, and it was the, whatever the characters and their powers. But like, I just, I just really enjoyed her social interactions with everyone. Yeah, I think without her, it wouldn't have worked at all. Uh, I, I thought it was fine. I enjoyed it. I, people, people think I hate it because I wrote a review about it that wasn't like glowing. But I didn't hate it. I watched the whole thing willingly. You know, I wasn't like pressing play begrudgingly i enjoyed it It just i i I, it was fine i felt like i'd seen this device before i've seen this structure before on the cw a million times you know and i wanted something maybe a little bit more creative out of it but this is also a whole new generation watching this show who doesn't really know the adams family and so the stakes aren't there for them right for our generation we grew up watching the 90s films and if we're really lucky watching the 60s TV show, you know, so we have a little bit more of a backstory than it seems like these Gen Zers do, who have very mm-hmm. little reference. Didn't even know that Christina Ricci, who is in Wednesday, was also Wednesday in the 90s movies. Like, so many people online had no idea that they're the same actress. Yeah, that was a little disappointing. But also, Christine... I almost just called her Christine Moransky. Um, <laughs> oh, God, I wish. <laughs> uh, Christina Ricci, her character kind of sucked. Uh, I thought it was very obvious the whole time. And she was so boring. (laughs) Yeah. But it it was fun to see her have scenes with Wednesday. She didn't upstage Jenna Ortega. She didn't even try to, but she wasn't even given the chance to. Yeah. I mean, they could have done a lot more with her character. They they could have written something better for her. Yeah. I thought Gwendolyn Christie was excellent. Like, if you look at the material that she was given, she had the same scene over and over and over again. Every single scene that she was in was Wednesday. I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> but she made yeah. each one so interesting. And that's the talent of a, of a, of a great actor, right? It's given this yeah. repetitive material, but she made each one a little different and interesting. And she looked fucking stunning the entire season. Although her best scene, I think, is when she's having wine 
in front of the fire at the end of a long day, ripping out pages from her yearbook. Definitely. Yeah. I haven't done that, but I was watching it and I was like, why haven't I done that? Like, <laughs> yeah. Get on it, Justin, for God's sake. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a fireplace season. Do you have a fireplace? No, no, I'd have Ooh. to start a fire I'd and, have to start. <laughs> and find a yearbook. I don't think I have one. <laughs> I have mine in my closet somewhere. I don't know. I have all this stuff that I feel like your parents are supposed to hold on to for you. You know what I mean? And it just, I have just like boxes and boxes of crap that I don't want. But also I can't bring myself to throw it away. Like my baby blankets. I'm never going to have children. What the hell am I going to do with this stuff? Why am I keeping it? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah burn them. All right. Well, other than Wednesday, have you uh, watched anything particularly spooky or scary that you recommend to the listeners? Um. I haven't watched a ton of horror movies. I went through that sort of post-Halloween. I went in different directions. Have you watched any Christmas movies that you recommend? No, I hate Christmas. Do you really? Oh my, I hate the holidays so much. Oh my God. Then that makes this even a more perfect movie for us to talk about then. Yeah, I guess I would say Black Christmas is my favorite Christmas film. Well, should we get into it? Should we start talking about it? Let's I would love it. that. Today we are talking about the 1974 horror classic, become a classic, was not necessarily received well initially, Black Christmas. Uh, it was originally going to be called Stop Me. And then Bob Clark, the director of the film, decided having it on a like a really well-loved holiday would up the stakes. And I think it was genius that he did. He also loved the title Black Christmas because it's kind of like a little blowing a raspberry at the White Christmas, you know, song and that ideal of like a beautiful, perfect Christmas. It was made on a budget of six hundred and twenty thousand dollars, and it brought in four point one million. So can be considered a success. It was filmed in Canada. So not necessarily a full-on part of the Canucksploitation that we saw in the 80s with Happy Birthday to Me, Prom Night, uh, My Bloody Valentine, that whole movement, but kind of an early version of that independent film. And it starred a pretty interesting cast of up-and-comings. We have Olivia Hussey as Jess Bradford, which is just the greatest name for an actress ever. Hussey. <laughs> Olivia Hussey. Uh, and she's so regal. And her, yeah. you know what I mean? It's just like, and, and she has this terrific name. We have Kier Delea as Peter Smith, who is Jess's boyfriend. So he was actually 38. These are all college students. None of them were actually college students. Peter, uh, the guy playing Peter was the oldest at 38. And then Olivia wow. Hussey was like 23 when she did this. Margot Kidder as yeah. Barbara Barb Cord. She's fucking amazing in this movie. She's so good. We'll get into why I love her so much. But for 1974, this this film writes women pretty interestingly. You know, they're not kind of the stereotypical horror characters. They have agency. They have personality. And they're not perfect. They're flawed. John Saxon as Lieutenant Ken Fuller, who would, of course, play Nancy's father in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, Miriam Waldman as Mrs. Mack or Mrs. McHenry, who is the MVP of this movie. (laughs) She's absolutely the best part. Uh, Andrea Martin, a young Andrea Martin, 
as Phyllis, Phil Carlson. And it's so cool seeing her in this movie. So interesting fact, Gilda Radner was originally going to play this role. And then because of SNL's scheduling conflicts, she couldn't do it. So Andrea Martin stepped in. Now they were part of, have you ever seen pictures of this like dream Canadian cast of Godspell? Uh, no. It's like Eugene Levy, Gilda Radner, uh, Andrea Martin, all of these incredible comedic actors before they made it big were all in this like summer stock production of Godspell together somewhere in Canada. Oh, I love that. And it's so cool. Highly recommend uh, looking that picture up. Also, uh, going back to the character of Peter, Malcolm McDowell was, was originally offered that role and he turned it down and he said it's the biggest regret of his career not playing Ooh. that role. He would have been great in it. I mean, he's kind of the same type as Kier DeLea, the guy who ended up playing the role. But Malcolm is just so iconic now, you know? This was... Mm-hmm. Was this before Clockwork Orange? I think it was like uh, Clockwork Orange is 71. Okay, so it's a little bit after. Yeah, so he would have brought a little bit of star power to it then at that point, right? But it might have changed the whodunit atmosphere of the movie. That's fair, too, because he's already such an iconic villain. Uh, Let's go ahead and jump into the plot, right? So Mm -hmm. the format is going to be, I'm going to read a little bit of a plot synopsis, and then we're going to go back and talk about that section of the movie. Okay, great. An unseen and disoriented man climbs up into the attic of a sorority house where the tenants are celebrating with a Christmas party. One of the girls, Jess, answers an obscene phone call from a mentally unstable man who is implied to call the house regularly. She summons her fellow students into the room where they listen as the caller screams and curses them on the phone. When one of the girls, foul-mouthed Barb, takes the phone from Jess, she incites the caller who in turn promises to kill her. Barb argues with the younger student, Claire Harrison, who implies that the caller could be a serial rapist before Claire returns to her bedroom to finish packing for Christmas break. The disoriented man lures Claire into her closet where he suffocates her with a plastic dress bag. He moves her body to the attic. So we get this great opening shot outside of this gorgeous sorority house. So they, the whole thing was filmed in a real home that's not a sorority house. In real life, it's still standing. It's become a tourist kind of attraction, just like the, the Myers house has hmm. from Halloween. Uh, the snow that we see in this movie was actually this like weird chemical foam that they sprayed all over the place. Really? Because <laughs> they didn't get a lot of uh, snow that year, the right kind of snow. Uh, and someone who worked on the film said that the following spring, the grass was like way greener than it usually was, <laughs> where oh, they had... Yes. Right, the chemical phone, which is terrifying. Uh, This is going to be arguable. A lot of people loud this as the first slasher film. Halloween gets a lot of credit for that. We also have to consider Psycho, and there's a 1960 film called Peeping Tom that I've personally never seen. So Peeping Tom is actually the first movie to use the the first-person perspective of the killer moving around. Black Christmas uses it very famously and then Halloween uses it. And that's where it that's Halloween is the movie that gets most of the praise for it, for that famous opening scene. But it's actually used a lot in Black Christmas throughout. The brilliant thing about this movie is that we never find out who the killer is. And I love that the studio wanted Bob Clark, who, by the way, would go on years later to direct a Christmas story about Ralphie. I know it's the same director. I think it's so funny. 
they wanted him to have a more definitive ending to this movie and he flat out refused he wouldn't do it they actually wanted him to make chris the guy in the fur coat end up being the killer and bob was like no he's with the police for most of the movie i'm not doing that because then there's going to be plot holes and i i just think it's wonderful that they kept it so vague because to me that's more scary having this fucking psycho living in an attic and not knowing about him not knowing what he's muttering about or who he is or anything yeah well i guess like one question i have is the opening scene where we see like his perspective outside and then sneaking in is that the first time he sneaks into the house do you think i've always assumed it was and i specifically like watched it this time and i do think it was a young high school girl we find out later has been murdered they find her body in the nearby woods and so i think he's probably coming off of that and then going to hide in this house because we see him kind of walk up to it and then we switch to his perspective and he he climbs the trellis up into the attic and they had to build a special rig because the, the right kind of camera harness did not exist for this. So they had to actually invent something so that the cameraman could climb up that ad, uh, app, sorry, climb up that trellis and into the attic. And he mutters throughout the film. So the killer's name has commonly become Billy because he's, he's constantly throughout the film muttering things about baby Agatha and Billy. And he uses multiple voices. Three different actors played the voice of Billy there's kind of a female angry voice that's often saying, why did you leave baby Agatha with Billy? There's Billy who maybe did something bad to baby Agatha. And then there's <laughs> Agatha who we have no idea who the hell she is. We never find any details out about any of this. Now the 2006 remake of black Christmas. Have you seen that one? Uh, no, you haven't really. They go into hardcore detail over explaining who Agatha is, who Billy is, why the mother is so angry all the time. And like Bob Clark produced that one and it was not well received. Michelle Trechtenberg uh, gets stabbed with an ice skate. It's pretty iconic. (laughs) And Andrea Martin returned. Say what? Doesn't she do an ice skating movie? The Ice Princess was a few was years before this. Yeah. Um, Andrea Martin returns to play the house mother in that movie, which I think is pretty cool. Okay. Uh, the movie is not good, but it's kind of fun in that think of like urban legend, right? That kind of style of really silly kind of dumb, unbelievable slasher movie. Sure. I think I hated it when it came out and then I watched it last year. And I didn't hate it as much. Did you see the 2019 remake of Black Christmas? No. <laughs> Thank God. I no, cannot no. I cannot shit on that movie possibly anymore. It how am I gonna say this without sounding like a toxic male? <laughs> the writers and directors wanted to make a feminist forward movie that gave the women in the movie power over the killers. And they did. It's just not Black Christmas. There's literally like a magical cult of like male frat boys who like summon this darkness that turns into toxic masculinity and they have black blood and there's like spell casting and magic. And it's 
it's just not Black Christmas. Like if that's a movie you're going to make, call it something else and make it PG-13 like you did. And they made it PG-13 so that women of all ages could go see it. It's not good. And it's not Black Christmas. And I'm not the only person who feels this way. So don't come for me. <laughs> don't come for me, feminist Twitter. I won't have it. Anyway, it, it, it's uh, Carrie Elways is in it. Uh, Emojin Poots, which I think is a funnier name than Olivia Hussey. And it's just real bad. So after the 2007 remake was a flop, Bob Clark started working on a screenplay that would be a direct sequel to his original 1974 movie. And then he died in a car crash. A uh, drunk driver hit him. That would have brought back Olivia Hussey and John Saxon, the, uh, the lieutenant. And Olivia Hussey would have been a house mother of that same sorority house now. And it would have been a direct sequel. And unfortunately, we never got it and we never will. But anyway, back to the plot. <laughs> so this Christmas party that's going on, very 70s. I I love the Christmas decor in this movie. My house growing up had a lot of like really old Christmas decorations from my mom's childhood, right? So kind of that plasticky holly that you see. with this, It's a very specific color of red on these plastic poinsettias. I can't describe yeah. it except to say it is what it is, right? We had that everywhere. I still have like a wreath just like that uh, in my living room right now. And it brings me back. And maybe that adds to why I love this movie so much. It's got such a nostalgic factor to it. Yeah. Uh, but there is something specific to the decorations in this film. It's just a dark movie, right? Shadows, great use of shadows, great use of lighting throughout. And even though you're in this college town, it, the house feels very isolated the people feel very isolated from their parents because on the one hand, like Barb's parents, like clearly don't give a fuck about her. And then Claire's dad, even though he's very present in the movie, he's very disapproving of like young people. So it's, it's interesting. I feel like these kids are really alone in the world. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. It, <sighs> The, the movie, there are eight deaths in this movie, but a lot of them don't happen until toward the end of the movie. There's a lot of buildup, and I love that. There's this sense of foreboding. Things keep getting kind of more and more dangerous without a lot happening, like, action-wise. And it really works in this movie's favor, I think. It's not as bloody as it could be. Bob Clark specifically made that choice. Kind of like how Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you don't actually see anybody necessarily get killed with a chainsaw. It cuts away right before it happens. And that's kind of a similar tactic in this movie as well. Um, it leaves it to our imagination. And yet somehow we also see a lot of really disturbing imagery, right? Yeah. Uh, so this opening scene, we do get to know the girl's pretty quickly barb marbo kid margot kidder is an alcoholic you know she's uh she's always drunk she's very crass she's she, not she's great <laughs> she's great she's so good she's not like a mean person but she says drunk things a lot that can that are mean I, you know it, it it she won um some canadian award for this movie uh for her performance I just think she's excellent in it. And she reminds me so much of a young Joanne from Company. Oh, interesting. Go I on. As you, as you wear your Company t-shirt right now. 
I know. I almost. I knew I was going to make that point, and I was like, "You should change your shirt." It's okay. Uh-huh. I'm wearing my. I'm wearing my black Christmas T-shirt. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Uh, I don't see her as an alcoholic necessarily, but I do see her as someone who is perhaps too jaded too early and is just hyper aware of how crushing the real world is. Sure. And is already drinking to deal with that. Uh, but I love her. Because everything she's, I feel like she's right about everything. They're like, "Oh, you're too crass, you're too much," but she's she's always right. She definitely is. We meet Jess, whose boyfriend Peter is not at the party. He's rehearsing for his piano recital. Uh, and Phyllis, I can't remember her boyfriend's name, uh, is kind of this goofy guy. So Mrs. McHenry or Mrs. Mac shows up at the Christmas party, and she's got a cigarette on like one of those long cigarette holders, and. Yeah. She's like a former vaudeville performer. Yeah. As they mention, and they buy her a Christmas present and it's this moo and it's fucking hideous. And it's, she opens it up and she's got her back to the girls, but she's facing the camera and she rolls her eyes and then puts on this plastic smile and turns around and goes, Oh girls, look at this. I've got about as much use for this as I do a chastity belt. She is fucking hilarious the entire movie. She hides alcohol all over this house (laughs) in the funniest places. She goes to the library and she goes, B, she's like looking through encyclopedias. She goes, B is for booze and pulls out one of the books. And she's got a flask in there. She, uh, Sherry, she keeps bottles of Sherry everywhere. Is that what it is? I think it's hilarious. Who the fuck drinks sherry besides aging vaudeville circuit queens, right? (laughs) Well. (laughs) Uh, At one point, she keeps it in the toilet, like in the the tank of the toilet tied to the chain, um, which I would assume keeps it cool. (laughs) It's it's probably a great temperature for that sherry. Anyway, she's just got it everywhere, and she's funny. She... I think she would just be a fun house mother because she she clearly lets these girls get away with everything, right? Yeah, and it's funny that in this house that's like full of debauchery, she's hiding her debauchery. So I couldn't tell if that was like uh, another context of her character. Like, is she not supposed to be drinking? Like, did she get in trouble for, you know, being a drunk or something in her life and she has to hide it now? I think it's fun for her. I think that she has fun height, like keeping it a secret. It's her dirty little secret because she smiles as she's like looking for her little flasks or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) She's great. She's such a fun character, perfectly portrayed. So the phone rings at the party and Jess answers it. And she says, Hey everybody, it's the breather again. And they've been getting these obscene phone calls from somebody who just kind of breathes and mutters on the phone. But this time he gets really, violent now when they filmed this scene the director bob clark was just making up dialogue on the spot they went in later in post and added all of these really bad obscenities it it's a really disturbing phone call pig noises muttering the multiple voices that i mentioned before Uh, he calls the girls pigs he uses the c slur a lot uh, that the actually all of the use of the C slur was cut out of the UK release, which is interesting to me because they drop that word casually in conversation all the time. Right, it did make sense because it's not a it's it's not a mean word there. <laughs> right, uh, it's it's a pretty like gross obscene phone call, and the girls look really disturbed and upset by it. 
and Barb grabs the phone and basically tells him to go fuck himself. Uh, and then he ends the phone call with, in a normal, like, normal person voice, I'm going to kill you. So he threatens all these girls' lives, and then he hangs up the phone. And that's when it actually got scary, I think. For me, the the obscenities and the, the voices, it was too much. It was a little, like, trying too hard. Yeah, when he actually speaks in a calm, soft voice, you know, and threatens Barb, it, it's really scary. And I think it's... It's why, you know, when a stranger calls is so successful because it's a simple, it's a real person on the phone. You know what I mean? Just talking. Yeah. To well, and this would predate when a stranger calls by five years, five whole years. Yeah. Uh, which I, I think I'm going to have to do an episode on that movie as well. The it's original. A great, it's, it's a great movie. Have you seen the sequel? Uh, I No, I've never seen the sequel. I've seen the bad remake. I love the bad remake, but the my roommate the, loves the bad remake. He was so excited to show it to me, and I was like, "This, this is not when a stranger calls." <laughs> I just also like it because that that house is so pretty. I just like hanging out in the house for ninety minutes with the atrium in the middle of it with birds. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the sequel is probably scarier. Um, I don't want to give it away, but it's it if away, you watch the sequel, it, it's. It really bridges the gap, in my opinion, between when a stranger calls and scream. Interesting. It's is it when a stranger calls back? Is that what it's called? Yes. All right. And it yeah. was a, a Showtime original movie. And Carol Kane is in it again, right? Mm-hmm. She yeah. gives a remarkable fucking performance in When a Stranger Calls at the restaurant scene when she gets the phone call and just yeah. starts screaming and crying. Like, what a fucking great actor. Uh all right, so the phone call happens. Claire shames Barb for edging this guy on, you know, for egging this guy on, uh, and then goes up to pack. Which makes me like okay when Claire dies, because like I, I feel like they just never like let Barb be who she is. They're always trying to control her. So, bye, Claire. Bye, girl. <laughs> and that's the bag on Claire. Uh Now Claire. We only get to know her for about five minutes because she leaves the party to go upstairs to pack. She's going to go home for Christmas. Her dad's going to pick her up the next day. Gets upstairs, walks past her closet, doesn't notice that behind a dress bag, there's someone in the closet standing there. This movie does great use of having the killer right next to the people and them having no fucking idea. Like he's living in the attic for this entire movie. And to me, that's the scariest thing in the world. Having somebody in my home and I don't know that they're there. Oh, yeah. It should be your safe place, right? Like, it should be your your sanctuary. And it terrifies me. So her cat seems to notice someone's in the closet. She calls her cat Puss, which is why I call my cat Puss now. At first, I thought it was vulgar, and now I can't stop doing it. And I say it in front of of strangers, and they think I'm disgusting. (laughs) Uh, And so she walks into the closet and gets the bag around her neck. And it's it's. It's pretty upsetting, you know, uh, when he like, what's it called when you wrap a bag around somebody's face? He suffocates her? Suffocates her, asphyxiates her. It's pretty fucked up. She gets taken up to the attic and placed into a rocking chair. And it's this iconic, it's just become iconic. This like bag over her head, young girl in a rocking chair next to a window, almost like she's looking out at 
And then we move on with the plot. The following morning, Mr. Harrison arrives at school to pick up his daughter, but she fails to show up to their agreed meeting place. He quickly makes his way to the sorority house where the house mother, Mrs. McHenry, is surprised by Claire's absence. Meanwhile, Jess meets her boyfriend, Peter, a neurotic music student. She explains she is pregnant and planning to get an abortion, angered by P- angering Peter, who attempts to intimidate her. In town, Mr. Harrison, accompanied by Barb and one of the one of the other girls, Phyllis Carlson, attempts to report Claire is missing while Jess quickly tells Claire's boyfriend, Chris, about Claire's sudden disappearance. They learn that another local girl named Janice Quaif has also seemingly vanished while walking home from school. So Mr. Harrison, Claire's dad, the girl who has been suffocated, shows up to pick her up and he's very disapproving. He's very, like, old, too. He seems old. Yeah. Shows up. She doesn't. She's not at the meeting place. So he ends up at the sorority house, and Mrs. McHenry takes him up to Claire's room. And Claire has these like inappropriate posters all over her wall. There's like one yes. like, an old granny giving the camera the finger, and he sees that and makes a dif- disappointing look. And then he picks up a picture of a boy, and Mrs. McHenry says, "Oh, that's Chris. He's a local. He's a townie." And then he happens to notice another picture on the wall and it's a woman lying on her naked woman lying on her back. And there's like a circle of flowers around her and she's got her legs kind of spread open. And then there's a naked man laying on top of her and his legs are straight. So their naked bodies form a peace sign in the middle of this circle of flowers. And Mrs. McHenry just casually takes her hand and like leans on the wall over the guy's naked butt. And it's fucking hilarious because she's not hiding anything. <laughs> she's not hiding anything. Uh, and so Claire's father says, you know, I didn't send her here uh, for debauchery and for picking up boys. And I'm thinking, then what did you think happens at college? Like, she's. Yeah. And there's also a lot of shade thrown at the townspeople. <laughs> a lot of sh- Which, listen, I used to work in New Haven. Conne- I lived in New Haven, Connecticut. I worked at a private Yale bar called Maury's. And let me tell you two things. I had never felt like the help quote in my entire life working in the service industry until I waited on these rich fucking Ivy league motherfuckers. Um, Truly, truly look at service people as less than, and it's disgusting to me. And also you were either a Yaley or you were a local. And like, even on, even on grinder, their profiles would say Yaley's only. Like, they were not fucking with the locals. You are looked on as separate. Uh, It's a real thing. Wow. Yeah, it's so gross. So, so gross. Uh, So Mrs. McHenry is like, listen, I don't know where your daughter is. I'm so sorry. She should be here. Um, And while this is happening, Jess and Peter meet up. And Jess is, I'm sorry, Peter is a music student. He's a piano player. And he's fucking insane. He's got a big recital tonight. And uh, so that's why he wasn't at the party last night. He's been practicing. He's just very, like, controlling. Oh, yeah. He's gross. Demanding. He's, yeah, he's gross. And Jess tells him, I'm pregnant. And I don't want this baby. And she's wearing a really stupid pink hat when she tells him. (laughs) Uh, And it upsets him. And he gets really mad. In the year 1974, when a lead character willingly wants to have an abortion because she she looks at the future of her life 
and does not see a baby in it. It's mind blowing to me, mind blowing to me that this movie got made at all. Yeah. Well, and, and because it's coming one year after row, it, it often feels like a, a like after school special, like mm. this is how real people deal with these, you know, hot topic issues. Um, and it's just happening simultaneously with a horror film. Peter's mad and he's like, oh no, we're keeping this baby. And Jess, Jess says, no, I'm not asking you. I'm telling you, I don't want this child. And he gets mad and he's like, why would you tell me this before my big recital? Which I do kind of agree with, like a little bit. It's a pressing issue, but if you're not, if you don't want this baby anyway, do you have to tell him at all? You know what? I'm never going to have to deal with this problem. I'm never going to have to have an abortion or anything. So maybe I shouldn't have an opinion on it. Yeah. I mean, maybe she could have waited. I don't know. It's so, I just, (laughs) it's also how they wrote Peter, but I hate everything about Peter. So I'm like, yeah, fuck up his recital. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fuck his recital up. He's trash. Bad news now. He does suck. He does really suck. While this is happening, uh, Mr. Harrison has given Mrs. Mack a ride to town. And then he and uh, Barb and Phyllis go to the police station. They're worried about Claire being missing. And then while they're doing this, Claire's boyfriend, Chris, busts in. And he's like, yo, what the fuck? Where's my girlfriend? Why aren't you guys doing anything about it? This brown fur coat that looks like he just skinned a bear and like threw it over his back, his back is the coolest coat I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. I have looked for one for years. I can't really? find it. That stupid website, Spirit Hoods, where they sell like fake fur coats for $300, has one that's kind of like it. But I just think when you get it in person, it's not going to look good. I also feel like that website is probably where that guy who dressed like a warrior at uh, the seas of the Capitol building is probably where he got his stupid outfit (laughs) but anyway if anyone ever sees this really cool coat let me know the actor had it like in his closet and he still has it to this day according to imdb can you write to him (laughs) maybe i will sir i know you probably don't have much time left would you leave that to me in your will thank you so much please bequeath me please bequeath me the police are not as interested in this case as they should be uh barb is drunk as fuck while she's talking to the police officer and being a little... She, what does it say about me that I'm like, yeah, she had like one or two drinks, maybe. She's no, 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 I know, because when you said she's not an alcoholic, I was like, no, she's drunk the entire movie. <laughs> like, daytime, nighttime, she's... she's no, she she is, because they make a comment later. The lieutenant says something like, yeah, that girl Barb, oh, she's still asleep at like 5 p.m.? We should probably let her sleep, based on what I heard about her at the station yesterday. She's drunk. There's a point in the movie where she's giving a little child alcohol. Eh. (laughs) All right. Well, as someone who's in recovery, game recognizes game. And let me tell you. All right. All right. Um, All right. So then they're also, they're also told that Janice, this high school girl has gone missing as well. Yet for some reason, the police are still not that, concerned so next bit of the plot after putting a drunken barb to bed mr harrison chris jess and phyllis help search for janice in a nearby park where she allegedly disappeared hoping to turn up some sign of claire 
Meanwhile, Mrs. Mack plans to leave for her sister's home, only to be lured up into the attic where she discovers Claire's body. The killer throws a crane hook into her face, hanging and killing her. In the park, Janice's disfigured body is found by the police, and Jess returns home while the search continues for Claire. Jess answers another obscene phone call and decides to file a report with the police only for Peter to appear and surprise her. He attempts to persuade her into marriage for the sake of their child, but Jess adamantly refuses. Peter leaves in an emotional state while Lieutenant Kenneth Fuller arrives to bug the telephone. All right. So a lot happens here at once. Barb and Mr. Harrison and Jess and Phyllis are kind of hanging out and Barb goes off on this drunken tirade about how turtles can fuck for three days at a time. And she just kind of goes on and on and it gets really uncomfortable uh, in front of Mr. Harrison. She makes a joke about how she can only get a guy who lasts for three seconds. And while it is funny and Phyllis is kind of laughing, she goes a little too far and, and Jess just says, go to bed. You're drunk. You're being, you're being obscene. Uh, and Margot Kidder makes this face that's, that she's just such so good in this movie. It's just this like, all right, fuck you. Yeah, I'm drunk, but I'll do it. Like, I'll go to bed. Like, she's just very, very yeah, yeah. on point in this performance. Uh, goes up to bed, and then they go join the search team in the middle of the snow. The lieutenant's explaining, like, this girl's missing. We got to find her. So they're pr- actually primarily looking for Janice, the high school girl. Janice's mom is waiting in a nearby police car. And everyone's searching the grounds. Somebody finds something. Now, we never see this body, uh, but it's a great shot of Mr. Harrison walking up to the camera and looking down. And you you see that it's not Claire. And then the mother getting out of the police car and running up and looking down at, down toward the camera. And you see that it is her daughter. And it's really interesting filmmaking. Really sad. Uh, but we know that Claire is upstairs in the attic because our killer keeps like rocking her chair and like has like a weird looking baby doll in her arms. Mm-hmm. And he's making these weird moaning sounds while he's rocking the uh, the uh, rocking chair that she's in. I do like I mean, that's especially as you explain it is so creepy. So I don't want to be like, oh, I love that. Um, but I do like that they have this really awesome kill at the opening of the film and they keep showing it again and again. It's like they're getting their money's worth with how cool the shot is. Definitely. I do want to know how long this actress was on set because she's got less than five minutes of screen time while she's alive. <laughs> but she's probably got more screen time as a corpse than she does when she's alive. But then she's also in the closing shot of the film, too, which we'll get to later. So Mrs. Mack is getting ready to go to her sister's and she's looking for her cat, Claude, and she hears him upstairs. And it's kind of like, it's an interesting sound because it's a sound that my cat has made. It's like this kind of low guttural long meow, Mm -hmm. but it could also be a person that makes that noise too. Very, uh, it's very good editing. This movie won uh, won an award for sound mixing, which I definitely agree with between all of the use of the voices that the character uses. Uh, The music in this film was done by taking a piano and tying like knives and forks and metal things to the strings and then just kind of pounding on different chords. So that's where we get that weird atonal 
fucked up sound that keeps happening throughout it. It's probably happening during this scene. Mrs. Mack hears something in the attic. So there's like an attic hole in the ceiling with like stairs that can come down. So she climbs up to try to find her cat, opens up the attic door, and she sees Claire's corpse in a rocking chair by the window with a bag over her face and screams. Turns around and she sees um, the, the shadow of a man holding like a crane hook and he swings it at her and we see the camera like rush toward her face. And then from below, we see her feet get sucked up into the attic and she has been hung, uh, hung through the mouth by a crane hook. Do addicts often have like hooking rigs like this? I think that one does because uh, how else would you get things? Like heavy things up and down? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. That makes sense. I've never lived in a house with an attic like this, so I don't know. But I also think, uh, you know, that might be a stretch, but it's a great death. It is a great death. And it's also sad because you really do like Mrs. Mack. You're really rooting for her. You do, and and like if there was a spinoff film where she actually makes it to her sisters and they don't get along, and it's that's an entire film, I think I would watch that. I would watch it too. Why don't you write it? Right. <laughs> and I'll play Mrs. Mac. I'll play her sister. <laughs> well, and it, it's interesting because she, of all these movies that have you know house mothers, I think they're also different. Like I love Carrie Fisher in sorority row yeah oh i forgot she did that movie she said she did it for a paycheck yeah but she's great in it yeah she is uh, and then what's the other one from the 80s the the house on sorority row yep where they like accidentally kill their house mother in a in the pool right there's like yeah a pool. And, yeah and she's like an insane evil woman remember oh yeah because she like with her cane Break someone's waterbed while they're fucking in it. Like, yeah. Um, so I like that all these house mothers are so different. <laughs> I, I just realized something. Her name is Mrs. McHenry. Later on, we see a, a record cover that says the McHenry sisters. So when she married, did she not take her husband's last name? Oh, maybe not. It's just, just a total plot oversight. Is she? We do we know she's married? Mrs. McHenry is what they call her. But that's also like something that they do to spinsters after a certain age. You just become a Mrs. Oh, I didn't know that. Once you're hopeless, yeah. So at what point do I become Mrs. Duarte? Or have you become? Oh, oh no! Oh god! Is this, how I, <laughs> is this how I find out in the middle of yeah, a live maybe. recording? <laughs> Because I don't think there's like, we're not like summoned to a meeting, you know, where the council votes. I think it just happens. Oh, God. Well, there we go. Let's don't go into the attics. <laughs> don't go into any attics. Don't worry. I don't have one. Yeah. Uh, all right. So Jess gets home. The others stay behind and the phone rings and she answers the phone. And the killer this time specifically starts talking about a baby. Right, calling this baby. He's mentioned Agnes before. This time, the, the phone call is very focused on a baby named Agnes. So the phone call gets really spooky. Jess files a report to the police. Uh, and then Peter shows up. And he tries to keep... He, he tells her, I'm quitting school. We're getting married. That's all there is to it. Which is the 
worst marriage proposal of all time. And she looks him in the eyes and she says, I don't want to marry you. And his reaction is really good. Like his, he, he gives a great performance of a monster in this movie. He gets up, he gets upset. He mentions, he says something about getting rid of this baby as easily as getting a wart removed. Uh, and, <laughs> and he leaves. Uh, and then Lieutenant, the Lieutenant shows up to bug the telephone. They're going to try to find this guy, but she has to keep the, keep the guy on the phone on the line long enough so that they can trace the call. We get to see how they traced calls back in 1974 and man, is it a pain in the ass. Yes. <laughs> um, all right. So next bit of plot, a group of choir children arrive on the house's stoop to sing Christmas carols, distracting Jess. The Which killer is my ent- nightmare. <laughs> oh, I think it's lovely. These kids are these kids are very talented. Oh no, see, I'd be like, oh, why don't you come up to my attic? <laughs> there are cookies in the attic. <laughs> no, um shows up on your door and sings to you? No. I mean that's terrible, granted, especially children. You you and I both spent many, many years working in famous piano bars where we just have to listen to people sing. But I elect to do that. <laughs> I don't have I these motherfuckers showing up at my door. Carolers, <laughs> no. No. No, no. See, I was watching this scene and thinking, man, I've only experienced Christmas carolers once in my life. And we did give them cookies. Uh, it's no, just- you encourage them. That's terrible. <laughs> They were good. They were very good. I remember I was a little kid and it was two young, probably college age girls and they sang in gorgeous harmony. And my mom had a cigarette in her hand while we watched the whole thing. And then she gave them cookies and she said, God bless you. <laughs> it, was a, it was a formative Christmas memory. Yeah. Anyway, I've never, I've never gone Christmas caroling. I did get hired once as one of those Dickens carolers that walk around malls and it was the last minute because the tenor had dropped out. And I, A, am not like a true, true, true tenor. And B, could not learn these harmonies in like the two days that they needed me to. So I got fired. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do? I don't sing oohs and ahs. I sing lead, and, motherfucker. And you still like carolers, even after your horrible caroling career. I think it's maybe because that dream was never fulfilled. It was taken mm. from me. A lot of longing there. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe this is the year. I'm just going to go force people to listen to me sing. All right. Why don't I just start that bit of plot over and you won't interrupt me about how annoying carolers are this time. <laughs> All right. I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah. A group of, a group, a group of, a group of choir children arrive on the house of stoop to sing Christmas carols, distracting Jess. The killer enters Barb's room and murders her with a glass figurine. Barb's cries for help are drowned out by the singing children. See, all right, maybe you are onto something about the perils of Christmas Carol. <laughs> you can't hear your housemate. I love, I love Christmas carols. <laughs> uh, one of the women in charge of the children ushers them away, having learned of Janice's murder. Jess experiences another unnerving phone call in which the caller restates part of her argument with Peter. Lieutenant Fuller theorizes that Peter could be responsible due to the caller's knowledge of the argument and his own mental fragility. While Jess doubts this, moments later, Phyllis enters Barb's room and is ambushed by the killer who murders her off screen. 
All right, so just before the children arrive, Barb gasps upstairs and Jess runs upstairs. Uh, we see the figure, we see the guy enter her room or look in her look in her door at least, and then she gasps really loud. Jess runs upstairs. It turns out that Barb has had a nightmare and she's having an asthma attack. So she's still drunk, has an asthma attack, uses her inhaler, drunkenly mutters, I dreamed that a stranger entered my room, and then drunkenly passes out again. So Jess is just convinced that Barb's going to sleep this one off, right? She's not going to keep that on her. Little does she know that this entire time, the killer was probably standing in the room the entire time in this dark room. Barb has these glass figurines above her bed, these delicate looking glass swans, and there's this glass unicorn with a really long glass horn. Jess goes downstairs, listens to these kids sing carols. It's an interesting shot of Jess looking out the door. I love this like 70s wreath with these. I, I love old school ceramic Christmas light bulbs. They just have a different glow to them than all of the LED ones do these days. I understand that they take up less power and they're not <laughs> like they were breakable as fuck. You know, and if yeah. one of them broke, the whole string was off. Um, <clears throat> but I just have really fond, like those were the bulbs. It was worth it. But it was worth it for that glow, baby. We see Jess looking at the carolers through the open door. And it's the only time that Jess smiles in the entire movie. Kind of, right? She's really upset. She's got a lot on her mind. And so it's interesting to get to see her kind of taken out of that for like a brief moment. And it's not like a big, happy smile. It's just this little bit of a grin. Um, Little does she know that her friends are being murdered up stairs so we see barb's room and the killer like walks up to her bed climbs onto the bed and grabs that glass unicorn and starts stabbing her and it's a really beautifully shot scene for someone who's being murdered just the use of shadow and his silhouette it's a great shot of her looking up and he's over her holding the unicorn over his head and we just see his eye illuminated briefly and then If you freeze frame it, you can see a little bit more of his face at a certain shot, Hmm. but it's very, very brief. And then he jams it into into her repeatedly, and Margot Kidder is 86. Yeah, and I just, uh, I don't like that scene. You don't? Why? Tell me. I mean, I don't like that she died. Also, when I was rewatching it last night, I kept falling asleep, and I slept through her death, which I was very excited about. Oh, I'm sorry. That... I just don't. I feel like she deserved more. <laughs> she, de- she deserved more. I feel like Phyllis deserves a better death scene than what she gets. But Yeah, and that's th- that's true. I But I also like Barb and Phyllis, I enjoy more than Jess. So yeah. the fact that Jess is the lead is always kind of like, eh. eh. Oh, I mean, so Barb and Phyllis, Jess has on her mind this entire time that she's pregnant and has to get an abortion. So... I, I give her a little, like, some slack for really going through something traumatic right now. Because Barb and Phyllis are given more fun to be yeah. had yeah, in, that's the way, in the way that they're written. So I don't think that it makes Jess unlikable. I just think that it, it, she doesn't have a lot of opportunities to to showcase a lot besides the emotion that she's showcasing of being upset. Right? Sure. All right, so the kids are ushered away. There's a killer on the loose. Lock your doors. And Jess looks at Phyllis and locks the door. And she says, do you realize this is the only door and window that's locked in the entire house? (laughs) What the fuck? And she says it fast. And I don't, I can't tell if it's there for comedic factor or not, but I burst out laughing. And I'm just thinking, what is wrong with you people? There are a million doors and windows in this giant, massive house. 
Why are you just now only locking the front door, you stupid idiot? But no one locked doors then, right? I guess not. This is actually like Ted Bundy. Uh, And, well, I guess I'll tell this story now. The first time this movie was going to premiere on TV, Ted Bundy murdered some sorority students and then left the sorority house and murdered some more people. And so the movie was pulled from the air because it too closely (laughs) resembled what he ended up doing, which is um, pretty upsetting. But yeah, I, I mean, nobody locked anything back then. I suppose. So they go to lock the kitchen door and there's like an old man staring in. He and this other goofy townie are just part of the search party warning these girls, you know, be safe. Phyllis, when they when they get rid of these guys, Phyllis says something like, I'd rather face the killer than these two. It's kind of a funny scene to break some tension. All right, so the phone rings again. Jess answers the phone and this time the killer focuses on talking about a baby again and this time ends the conversation with it's as easy as getting a wart removed so exactly what peter had said before Uh uh-huh so she tells the lieutenant this and the the lieutenant's like listen it sounds like it's peter he's obviously a nut job right also he was listening in because the phone is bugged and he says what did he mean uh, when he, you know, he said easy as a wart removed and you said, oh my God, did that like resonate with you and why? And so then Jess tells him I'm pregnant and I, I don't plan to keep it. Phyllis is sitting next to her and you see Phyllis's reaction. Uh, so Phyllis didn't know that she's pregnant and her reaction is really good and supportive. Mm-hmm. You know, she's just, she makes, she just kind of covers her mouth, but not in like a shocked, oh my God way, but in like, a, oh, you poor thing. Um, it, it, you like Phyllis would have driven her to Planned Parenthood, you know, oh, yeah. absolutely. And so then Lieutenant's like, all right, I think it's probably Peter, you know, you're planning to terminate his, you know, this pregnancy uh, and he doesn't want you to. Uh, but Jess isn't convinced. So we see Phyllis go up to, to check on Barb. Uh, <laughs> Barb's bedroom door has a wreath with mini bottles tied to it. Uh, I won't lie. I decorated a mini tree with mini bottles of Jaeger and Fireball one year. So reasons I'm in recovery now. Uh Um, (laughs) It's an, it's a pretty cool shot because it foreshadows something that happens in a minute, but Phyllis enters the room. She's opened the door, enters the room and then looks to her left and she sees somebody and then the door slams. So like this guy has been hiding behind the door Right when right when she sees him, the door slams behind her. It's pretty sad because you know what's going to happen to her. Yeah. Great shot. I wish that just because it's Andrea Martin, she got like a really good kill scene. But also, we just know what happens. Maybe we don't need it. Next bit of plot. Jess gets another obscene phone call in which the killer alludes to some sort of transgression between two children named Agnes and Billy. The call is long enough to be traced by Graham, a telephone company employee, and Sergeant Nash instructs Jess to leave the house immediately, as the calls have been traced to be coming from within the house. Concerned for Barb and Phyllis, Jess arms herself with a poker and ventures upstairs, where she discovers Barb and Phyllis's maimed figures. The killer appears and pursues Jess through the house. Jess locks herself in the cellar, only for Peter to appear outside one of the windows. He smashes the window to get to Jess, who proceeds to bludgeon him with the poker, assuming he is the killer. Shit gets really scary really fast at this point, and I love it because it's been moving slowly for so yeah. long, and suddenly it's not. 
And that's one of the reasons this movie works so well for me is that suddenly, like all of this dread has been building and then suddenly it pays off real, real quickly, right? So another obscene phone call just keeps him on the line long enough this time. And when they hang up, the guy who runs the telephone operation trying to trace this, which means he's running back and forth down all of these hallways of phone lines. <laughs> it's really involved trying to trace this call in 1974. Calls the lieutenant and is like, uh, the, the calls are coming from this address. And lieutenant's like, no, 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 that's the address where they're at. He goes, yeah, someone's calling from inside the house. Mm-hmm which is essentially a take on the urban legend, the babysitter and the man upstairs, right? Which would then be used again and again and again. Now, this trope has been used once or twice before this in film. This is the first major use of it. And then, of course, when a stranger calls would be the definitive version of it. What, five? Did you say five years later? Yeah. Yeah. Lieutenant calls Nash, this idiot police officer who works at the station, and says, just tell her to leave. Do not, do not tell her the calls are coming from in the house. Just tell her to stop what she's doing, hang hang up the phone, and get the fuck out. Nash calls her, she answers, and he fucks it up. You know, he says, I need you to leave. And she goes, well, why? What's going on? I need to grab Phyllis and Barb upstairs. And he he spills the beans and he says, the calls are coming from inside the house. So now she's terrified, and now she wants to go save her friends. And he he built it up so much. He was like, no matter what I say right now, you can't ask any questions. And it was like 30 seconds of him like prepping her for this. Of course she was going to ask a question. Yeah, he's an idiot. He's been making stupid mistakes this entire movie. Is he the one who fell for the fellatio phone phone number? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Barb gives him a number, and it's fellatio 49264. It's a new connection. And then there's this whole bit where he gives the number to somebody else and he has to explain, oh, yeah, fellatio, it's his connection. Yeah, Barb gave it yeah. to me. It's so stupid and so funny. I That's think the bit, the bit lasts a little too long, but it does, I, yeah. it's some welcome comedic relief at his expense. And then it also pays off with him fucking up trying to get Jess out of the house because he's just a complete idiot. So this is where Olivia Hussey's performance, like, skyrockets she runs to the front door and she she screams upstairs phyllis barb please answer in her british accent please answer me (laughs) she's super upset uh great great performance Uh, i i love this period in horror where it's before what we knew a final girl was right and so we've got some really good actors playing them they just don't know that they're final girls yet. Sure. And these movies are not being churned out to make a profit just to rip off Halloween. Like, this is a really good screenplay. Like, it's an actually, it, it's a screenplay that totally, totally works. Oh, so, yeah. oh, I just thought of something, too. One of the times the killer makes a phone call, he's looking at a record that is the McHenry sisters. Now, the girls have called her Mrs. Mac for most of the movie. I think if you're really closely paying attention, you'll put together that she is Mrs. Mac Henry with her sister on this photo, on this uh, album cover. And you can put together that he's in Mrs. Mac's bedroom. Mm, Okay. Right? But if you don't put together that Mrs. Mac is Mrs. Mac Henry, you'll just overlook it. Yeah, that's smart. Maybe. So anyway, Jess looks across the room at this beautiful fireplace and she sees a fire poker. So she goes to get it. 
slowly walks up these spooky, spooky, scary, dark stairs and opens the door to Barb's room. And Phyllis and Barb's dead bodies are both laying in bed. Real sad. And then she looks to her left. And Justin, this is one of the scariest things in any movie of all time ever to me. Okay. Because if you open a door and the crack between the door and the door hinge, there's a space, right? Uh-huh. In this space is an eyeball, like a person staring at her. And it's lit so scary. It looks a little bit red. Um, <laughs> the pupil is like brown, brown, but kind of looks a little bit red because of the lighting. And he's mm-hmm. muttering things like, oh, Agnes, Agnes. Blah, blah, blah. And it's fucking terrifying to me. It's just the scariest thing. It gave me nightmares for years. It's really? Still, it's still, it's still, every time I know it's coming. And yeah. I watch this movie every single Christmas. I underestimate how chilling it is even to me who's seen it a million times and does not uh-huh. get scared during movies. Does it not scare you? I think it does. It's scary. Are you just saying that to appease me? I think so. Okay. Well, <laughs> listeners, it's real scary. <laughs> I also, all right. When I describe these movies, I, I describe them as though I'm talking directly to my friend, Shauna. Hey, Shauna, love you girl who does not watch horror movies. So this is kind of like how she gets to have, be a part of the conversation. Right. So I always describe them as though it's for her so that she can at least like, that's how I get enough plot in to make sure I'm being cohesive. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So Shauna, this is the scariest thing I've ever seen in any movie ever. Uh, don't watch this movie. It's, it's too scary. So <laughs> I do think for me, what I find it scarier when you know that like the, 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 the realization that the calls are coming from inside the house to be a scarier moment than actually seeing him behind the door. Say that one more time. You cut out. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, for me, the scariest moment is learning that the calls are coming from inside the house like that type of dawning realization is is much scarier than seeing the the eyeball. I mean, it is it is scary, especially in a time when that was not a trope that was happening in movies a lot, right? It's kind of and it doesn't make sense by today's standards unless someone's just calling you from a cell phone in the house, which is kind but of what happens in the would, remake of A Stranger Calls. Right, but even that would scare me because then someone's in in my house that I didn't invite. Right. So we, <laughs> no, and it all happens so fast, right? Because she finds out it's coming from inside the house and she finds her friend's dead bodies and then she sees this person staring at her from behind behind a door. Right, 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 right. She screams and starts to run down the stairs and when she gets to the base of the stairs, he's at the landing and he grabs her by the hair. And it, it's really good because you don't see him coming. It, the movie, there are points in the movie before where she's she's talking to, sitting talking to Phil and you see him behind them in the shadows, literally, like plain as day. You don't see his face. He's a silhouette. But he appears in the shadows throughout this entire fucking movie. Like, he's real creepy. He's always there. He's just not quite there. Right, right, right. Grabs her by the hair. She gets away. Uh, she runs down to the cellar and locks herself in. And she's kind of looking around, trying to find a place to hide. She hides behind the stairs, but she can still see through the staircase. And a shadow walks up to the window and crouches down. And it turns out to be Peter. And he says, hey, the door is locked. I can't get in. I came to check on you. 
but like she thinks it now. I mean, she just thinks it could be him, you know? Yeah. And so rightfully she, so. I always think it's him. It, totally. It, the, there's no reason not to at this point. Uh, especially knowing that the calls are coming from inside the house. He's familiar with the house. He should, you know, he would be able to get in and out. Uh, he breaks the window and gets in, which would just further convince me that he's the killer. And this great moment where he walks out of the shadow into the light, right? So even that, if Billy has been in shadows this entire time, then to have Peter walk from shadow into light is subconsciously convincing us that it could also be him too. Yeah. We don't see her bludgeon him with the poker, but it cuts away right before she stands up to, and it's implied. Next bit of plot. The police arrive moments later, alerted by Jess's screams. They discover her barely conscious in the basement with Peter's bloody remains next to her. They put Jess to bed and discuss the murders, unaware of the bodies of Claire and Mrs. McHenry still in the attic. Jess is left in the house to rest with a policeman standing outside. The killer climbs down from the attic as Jess sleeps in a nearby room. The house's telephone begins to ring, leaving Jess's fate unknown as the credits roll. So police arrive. Lieutenant comes down the stairs and sees Jess kind of passed out holding a poker and Peter's bloody body is on top of her. And he calls out to Jess and we see her wake up just a little bit. Peter's dead wake up just a little bit and then we cut to her laying in her bedroom she's surrounded by police officers and a, a lot happens at this point uh really quickly and you really have to listen to what they're saying or you're not going to understand the ending of this movie uh she is not going to wake up for hours they say she's really not going to be conscious enough to tell her side of the story until the next afternoon so right. please like so detectives just leave you're not going to get anything out of her anytime soon which is so inappropriate. Like, take her to a hospital. Why would they keep her there? Right. No, totally. She needs, I mean, she should be in a hospital if she's in this kind of shock. And she's just, I mean, because then we wouldn't have the ending to the movie that we get. <laughs> We'd have the ending to the 2007 remake, which if you see that movie, you'll understand why it doesn't work. <laughs> um, Claire's father is there in the room as well. He's sitting in a chair. And uh, the one of the police officers says, so then he, the killer, Pete, it's assumed that Peter is the killer now, right? Peter must have made a phone call every time he killed one of the girls, is what someone says. But it's a quick throwaway line. Claire's father passes out. He's overcome and he passes out and he's in shock. So they run and one of the one of the detective, one of the police officers says, I'll stay with Jess all night. Well, when her when. Claire, the girl who got the bag over her face, when her father passes out from shock, they rush him to the hospital. And in kind of all the commotion, someone turns off the light to Jess's room and everybody leaves her alone. Right. <laughs> so they just said, we're going to stay with her all night. <laughs> and then fucking overdramatic Claire's dad, prude motherfucker, passes out. And he's the one who gets to go to the hospital, which is, you're right, makes no sense. Damn it, I never thought of that. This movie's ruined for me. <laughs> we hear that weird discordant music again, and we start hearing muttering about Agnes and Billy again. And the camera pans out of her room, and it passes by Barb's room, and the camera passes by Claire's room. And pass like a picture of sorority alumni, and it 
pans up to the attic door or the attic trap door and the voice gets louder and louder and we see the the attic trap door start to lift a little bit there's light behind it and then we cut to the attic uh and we're looking in the attic window from outside and we can see mrs max body hanging by the hook in the in the background we see Mm -hmm. claire's body with the bag over it, looking out the window. So these bodies haven't even been discovered yet by the police. They don't even, they haven't even checked the attic yet. Everything's happened. This is very fresh, right? Yeah. And the camera pans out away from the house. We see a police officer step outside. All the lights are out. We see the police officer step outside, the one who's supposed to be watching her, and light a cigarette on the porch. And then we hear the phone ring. And the phone rings for the entire credits. It's just an exterior shot of the house and the phone ringing. And it's just implied that Billy got Jess because every time that he kills one of the girls, he makes a phone call. Hmm. Really cool ending in that the writer of the screenplay wanted a definitive answer to whether or not Jess survives. And Bob Clark, the director of the film, did not want a definitive answer on whether Jess or not Jess survives. So they came up with this middle ground where you have to really pay attention. And it's it's still not clear if she's killed or not, but it's right. it's it's my belief that she is. I think the rest of the movie is so hopeless and so um uh like foreboding that I, I really think that he got her in the end, because he's still in the house. And it wasn't Peter. And that's what's so scary about it is that we don't know who the hell the scary, crazy person is. And it's kind of a, a ironic, lightly humorous conclusion to the abortion conflict. Oh, no, you're right. You know what? I did, I did have that thought last night. If the body count is eight, in some states in America, the body count might be nine. But you don't. I mean... I don't think she died. You don't you don't think she did? No, and I still think Peter's the killer. Is that wrong? I think I do think it's wrong because we see the lid to the we see the trapdoor to the attic open up a little bit as we hear Billy's voice. Uh, all right. All right. I just never like trust the endings of these movies because if you look at like Look at the ending of Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th. They have like a a silly scare moment at the end Mm -hmm. that isn't actually related to the plot. Yeah, but I, um, I think I feel I feel as though those ones are strictly for the use, like only for the sake of a gimmicky jump scare. Don't get me wrong that that lake scene on Friday the 13th was I don't think I've ever jumped out of my seat as high as I did the first time I watched that movie, it scared the fuck out of me. It was not expecting that moment Uh when I was a kid. But I, I, I think that that would not match the tone of this movie. I think that this movie is very straightforward and there is no supernatural element attached to this. And I, I, don't feel as though the rest of the movie would trick us in that way. I do think that Peter was not the killer. He was just an asshole. And that the killer was just some fucking psychopath hiding in their attic. And I, and I mean, that is, and this is just the common theory that we never find out who he was. Hmm. All right. All right. 
And that is 1974's Black Christmas. <laughs> yeah. uh, Justin, on the Rick or Treat horror cast, I have a rating system. A movie okay. is either a trick, which means it's just okay, or it's a treat, which means you loved it, or it's a smell my feet, which means it sucked. How would you rate this movie? I think it's a treat. Yeah? Tell I us more. It. Yeah, I mean... Now that we're like, I guess I just every time I watch it, I still think Peter's the killer. But so now I'm, you've, you've changed how I think about the film. Um, but I enjoy it a lot. I like I like the simplicity of the killer calling uh, on the phone. I like all the characters. You know what I mean? It it it's very compelling. I do think it's too long and the pacing's a little. Uh, slow at times and i the 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 father of claire is so annoying (laughs) you know and he's actually in it a lot um but apart from that i think it's a very good film i i would have liked more of a chase scene at the end if i'm cherry picking what i want yeah i agree with you i I think it's a total treat like i said it's one of my favorites i do think it is a long movie uh could probably shave maybe 10 minutes off but i for, just for me personally, I do think that that makes the ending more rewarding is having it move so slow paced and then suddenly not. And you are right. A, a longer chase scene would have been effective. We weren't quite at that point in horror movies yet where a chase scene was kind of a big part of the movie. Right. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, but it would have been a little more rewarding, I think, just to see because the whole cellar sequence Mm, I don't want to see Jess bludgeon Peter necessarily. I like that it fades out and we're not sure if he gets her or if he, if she gets him until a moment later, maybe just a little bit longer of a chase through the house. But when he grabs her by the hair, it's really scary. Yeah. Wait. So in this world that you've introduced me to where Peter is not the killer. Okay. You think Jess kills Peter? Yeah, she blo- yeah, she kills she bludgeons him with the poker. So it's you don't think the killer if the the real killer shows up at that moment and kills Peter? No, cuz he wouldn't have left Jess alive. He has no reason to leave Jess alive. He's 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 killing everybody. But he likes Jess the most, right? Like he always talks to her on the phone. She's the one who answers the phone. Hmm. Hmm. No, she she definitely kills Peter for her own for her own protection because she she's she thinks at that point that it's him. But an interesting take on it. I hadn't thought of that either. But no, she she's got the poker. She's holding it when they find her a moment later. She's got it in her hand and his his yeah. head has been it's clear that he's been struck in the head. Huh. Well, now uh, now I'm interested for you to rewatch it the next time that you see it and then uh, and look at it through that lens and, and see what you think about it. Then the, the, look, the movie is purposely left vague. As I said, so I, I'm not like I do think if you want to continue thinking it's Peter, that's perfectly fair. Uh, it's just, you know, I think maybe for some people it could go either way. Yeah. And yeah. Huh. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And that <laughs> that is Bob Clark's Black Christmas. Thank you so much, Justin, for appearing again on the podcast. I always think it's such a treat to talk to you about horror movies. You have such a brilliant mind when it comes to storytelling. Oh, thanks. Uh, Yeah, thank you. Thanks for sharing it with us. Uh, Where can my listeners stalk you? Uh, I am on Instagram at Justin Plays. 
Excellent. And they can read your reviews and opinions about horror movies. Where? At Rue Morgue and Slash Film. Excellent. You, I do aspire to be as cool as you one day and write, <laughs> write for horror, a horror publication. Uh, I do write uh, reviews for film and television, and I select mostly horror material on spoilerfreereviews.com. Check cool. it out. It's a great website. Uh, and if you want to follow the podcast on Insta, it is at Rick or Treat Pod. If you want to follow me on Instagram, it's Rick, the letter R Treat. I thank all of you listeners so, so much for being supportive the last few months as I've gotten this podcast going. We've entered phase two of the pod. I have new logo art and a new intro and outro music uh, by this artist named Lestat von Monlicht. I wanted a more modern version of the classical piece that I had been using and happened upon his uh, like heavy metal cover and fell in love with it. So I messaged him and he was very generous in letting me use it. And uh, so... We will credit him for his art. Check him out. All of the links are in the description. And happy new year. Happy Christmas to you, Justin, and to the listener. And I'll see y'all later, spookies. Thanks for coming trick-or-treating. It'd be a real scream if you'd take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever platform you're listening on. The show's spooky intro and outro music is a cover of Camille Saint-Saëns' Danse Macabre, with kick-ass metal orchestrations composed and performed by Lestat von Monlicht. Links to the artist's music can be found in the episode's description. Check him out, he's frighteningly talented. Rick or Treat Horrorcast is independently produced by me, Ricky J. Duarte, of Rick or Treat Productions. If you like what you heard, tell a fiend. I mean, friend. If you didn't, well... They're coming to get you, listener. <laughs>